You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I'd like to pray, so if you bow your heads with me, that would be awesome. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving your word all of these years. Lord, we know that man cannot live by uh, physical bread alone, but only upon every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we confess that, admit that. We need you and we need your word to speak to us. We need your spirit to come and inhabit the spaces and places of our heart and souls that are dead or weary or rebellious. We need you to come and bring to life to give energy and to instruct us on how to walk in holiness. So God, we need that. We need more than that. And so Lord, your word does tell us in Ephesians that you are far more abundantly able to um, do more than we can ever ask or think. And so uh, knowing that our words fall tremendously short, we fall tremendously short, you don't. Um, and so, God, we trust you to come and be among us and to act upon our hearts and upon our lives in ways that would cause us to grow into the image and the character of your son, Jesus. And so, Father, we ask you to do great and powerful things through the preaching and the study of your word this morning. God, we love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to get us started off with a thought before we jump into our verses for today. Uh, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6 for the second week. Um, and here's the thought. It's, it's what I would call a, a principle, right? A principle is a timeless truth. A principle is something that is true no matter what time it is, no matter what culture you live in, no matter what circumstances you have going on in your life. And here's that principle. I think it's on your handouts in front of you, maybe on the screen in front of you too. Um, it's this truth that we are called to walk in hope-filled obedience and Christ-like character. That's, our, that's what we're called to. Called to walk in hope-filled obedience with Christ-like character. And it's interesting if you think about the topic of obedience. Um, because obedience, if you think about it like a glass um, that can be filled with something, um, then it's also interesting to think of that same glass with little beads of perspiration on that glass, right? Like the picture, I think, again, in front of you. Um, those little beads of perspiration on the glass kind of prove how hot or cold the glass is, right? And it's the same with our lives. We fill our lives with some flavor of hope, and then like a glass with perspiration, uh, our obedience has a certain character to it. A certain temperature that proves how hot or cold proves what kind of hope we've actually filled ourselves with. And so let me ask you, um, are you walking in hope-filled obedience this morning? Does your life have the evidence of Christ-like character in it this morning when you came in here? And what does your character say about the hope that you filled yourself with? 
If you look at Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 with me, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So last week, as we looked at these first six verses of chapter four, we really examined verse one and verse four, okay? And if you put those two together, it would read like this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. We learned, big principle and idea from last week, that to be called by God is to be a prisoner for the Lord who walks in a worthy manner because of one single hope. If God has called you, then you belong to God. And the way that you walk as someone who belongs to God is a serious subject. The reason it's serious is because the way that you walk is directly tied to, directly rooted in, and gives evidence to the hope that you have, the hope that you filled yourself with. Now, I'll be honest with you. I plan to spend the majority and the bulk of our time today on this topic of hope as a pullover from last week and as a transition into what I really want to talk about this week, which honestly is six principles of character, which we're going to get to in the end. Part of the reason that I chose to stick here with hope um, it's twofold. Number one, I know that hope is an issue in our culture and inside of our hearts, but it really is for me. Uh, I get the privilege of being a part of two gospel communities, and um, one gospel community is full of people who have been walking with Jesus 10 plus years, mostly, and the other is full of people that have been walking with Jesus for less than 10 years. And in both of those gospel communities, regardless of the maturity or time of walk with Jesus, um, one of the major things that I kept hearing from a theme, as a theme, was hope. And this is an issue for me. Hope, uh, hope is hard. It's difficult. Hope is elusive. Hope is hard to put um, your hands on and, and make sense of it. It, it feels like a, an invisible thing, right? And so I plan to spend most of my time there, but just on the front edge in some sort of humility or humbleness, just saying I, this is something that I really don't have down, and I'm really fumbling my way through um, still even yet this morning. Um, but I pray that the Lord would use our time together to encourage and strengthen you. So, so I want you to think about hope, okay? So think about what you hope for. This is where I begin as I begin my journaling um, from the end of last week's sermon as we talked about hope. Think about what you hope for. What do you long for? What do you dream about? So I'm absolutely convinced that the urgency of what I hope for shapes my character and my character produces more hope okay in other words desperation fuels hope hope changes my character and my character produces more hope a think of desperation go back to the cold glass of water um, analogy that we just used a minute ago a think of desperation like a cold glass of water to a thirsty person 
or maybe a nine course meal to a starving person. When that person who is starving or thirsty sees the opportunity, catches the vision to get that cold glass of water or to get that nine course meal they have been longing for for so long, they've been dreaming about for so long, longing for, desiring, hoping for, wanting, and not just a mere like headspace, wanting, desiring, longing, right? But you feel it with every ounce of your body, all of your emotions, every waking moment of your day as you starve or go without water, you begin to think more and more about those things as the object of your hope. Tracking with me? What happens is that person then becomes consumed, absolutely consumed with satisfying that hunger or that thirst that he or she has been living with for so long. Now, I would imagine that most of us in this room have not yet known what it looks like or feels like to starve. You can look at me and you can tell that I have not dealt with that issue. <laughs> I enjoy my potlucks. <laughs> What are you desperate for? What makes you desperate? Let me ask you this question. Are, are you willing to go here with me this morning? That's, ask yourself that question. Are you willing to let the Holy Spirit take you there? I'm not the Holy Spirit. But I think the Holy Spirit wants to speak this to us. So are you willing to let the Holy Spirit take you there? Or are you kind of like one of my mom's horses that... <laughs> It's like constantly yanking back on the reins, not wanting to go where the rider's trying to take them. Where are you at? Because this might be really important for the condition of your heart and your soul to hear. I know that it is for me. And I can just say the reason that I say that is because I'm a pretty stubborn old mule deep down inside. And I can be pretty bullheaded. And it can be hard for me to go where the Lord wants to take me. And this is probably one of those places that was, has been painful for me to think about. So it may be for you. What are you desperate for? See, if, if I'm desperate to be loved and accepted, and let me just say, I face long, intense seasons of wanting to be loved and accepted. If, if you know me, you know that's true. And it, doesn't, it wouldn't take long to get to know me to know that that's true about me. That I can be desperate to be loved and accepted by someone. The question is, what do I do then when that desperation reaches a boiling point in my life? When it reaches a starvation point in my life? What do I hope will satisfy that longing? Maybe it's a relationship or maybe it's a pat on the back from someone that I think will satisfy. So I place my hope in that. If I'm desperate to be respected or successful, and again, if you know me, you would know that I face intense seasons of wanting to feel or appear to be successful or to be respectable or respected. So if I'm desperate to be respected or successful, then what do I do? And what do I hope in that I believe, believe, trust, will satisfy that deep longing. 
a deep hunger, a deep thirst. Maybe it's a job promotion. Maybe it's a personal accomplishment, right? One of those two. If I'm, if I'm desperate to be released from pain and suffering, anybody ever get there? Face some pain, face some suffering in your life. Feel desperate to be released from that. What do I hope will satisfy that loneliness? Maybe it's an addiction. Or maybe it's another form of escape, right? Maybe one of those two things. What do you do when you catch a vision for the thing that has become the ultimate answer for the hope that you have? What do you do when you catch a vision? You, you see that picture that has become in your mind and in your heart the ultimate answer for the hope that you have. See, this is where yours and mine's character becomes visible. It's in that moment when that vision gets dropped in front of you, when the possibility or the ability to satisfy that deep longing, that's when our character becomes obvious. So my hope, and you, and you might, if you think of hope, here was something I wrote down. Uh, hope could be seen maybe as satisfaction for my desperation. That could be, I think, a way of describing the word hope. I'm not a dictionary, and I did not consult a dictionary, so I could be wrong. But it feels intrinsically right, okay? So I'm just lay it there. Got nothing objective other than your pastor saying that's probably what it means. And if I'm wrong, I'm okay being wrong. So if you want to consult a dictionary, do so. But hope, when my hope or, or satisfaction for my desperation, when that hope or when that satisfaction for my desperation becomes fixated on a specific object that I believe will satisfy me, then my true character becomes visible because what I do flows out of my character, who I am. So when I see the thing that I think is going to satisfy my deep longing and whatever I do to get that thing or make it happen or resist it um, proves what my character looks like. Desperation fuels hope. Hope shapes character. And character produces more hope. Now, Paul says it another way, similar to this in Romans. Just head there for a minute. So if you're in Ephesians, just turn back to the left a little bit. It should be on the screen in front of you too. Romans 5, 2 through 5. Paul says, We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character what? Produces what? Hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So Paul in, in Romans here is talking to Christians, right? He's talking to Christians who have actually placed their hope in Christ. And what he's calling them to do in Romans 5 is to rejoice in hope and to rejoice in suffering because desperation fuels hope, hope shapes character, character produces more hope. 
And so back to Ephesians 4. This is what I love about what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4 as you jump back there. So Paul is suffering, right? Paul is desperate. He's in prison. That's where he writes this letter from. It's a disconnect there for us. Paul is alone in a jail cell. He, he hardly appears to be successful at leading a spiritual revolution. The business down the street is not looking to hire a dude who's been in prison, whether they were false charges or not. You go to jail, you go to prison, it gets hard to get a job. Single ladies in town are most likely, if they're worth their salt, <laughs> not interested in hooking up with a dude who's sitting in jail, okay? You can rephrase that a thousand different ways that would probably sound better, so <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you get the point though, right? Like, you're sitting in jail, you're dating game, it's not gonna be its all-time best. There's another way of phrasing it that probably sounds better, okay? <laughs> Paul's not making the cover of magazines for the most successful man of the year. Paul's just an ordinary dude sitting in jail with, with, with an extraordinary set of circumstances. Okay? Much like all of us. Whatever your circumstances are in your life that feel so whopping extraordinary, which they probably are. I'm not trying to be condescending because mine feel really extraordinary. Every one of us is just an ordinary person, just like the Apostle Paul. And sometimes we have a tendency to set the Apostle Paul up on a pedestal like he was so great. And he did great things for sure, but let's not forget who the Apostle Paul was. Just an ordinary dude, ordinary dude with an extraordinary set of circumstances that he faced with absolute Christ-like character. Because his hope was centered on Christ. And yet... Uh, this particular set of circumstances that Paul is sitting in makes him extremely qualified to urge each of us to walk out our calling in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Right? Verses 1 and 4. And right in the middle of those verses are what? Verses 2 and 3. Now, these verses didn't exists there until we put our touch to it. Thankfully, they're there because it's helpful for us. But right in between verses 1 and 4 happens to be verses 2 and 3. Imagine that. Paul says that our walk should be characterized with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, held together like glue by peace. Called to walk. And hope-filled obedience and Christ-like character. So think about the Apostle Paul again. Okay, Go back to the Apostle Paul one more time. When Paul heard the call of God on his life, on the road to Damascus, if you know the story, if you don't, I encourage you to go read it. It's in the book of Acts. It's great. When he heard the call of God on his life, on the road to Damascus, Paul's life got radically turned upside down by Jesus. This is what Jesus does. Flips lives upside down. Listen, if your life has not been radically turned upside down by Jesus, then you've got to question whether you've encountered Jesus or not. 
Because when you encounter Jesus, your life will not be the same from that point forward. And it's not that that should be a one-time experience. I, I believe wholeheartedly from my study of the scriptures and time spent following the Lord that this, this is about Jesus continuing to ransack our lives so that we become more like him. Yours and mine's life needs to be turned upside down by Christ. Maybe that should be our prayer. Jesus, turn my life upside down. Maybe that's the fulfillment of our hope that we should be praying for, right? So when Paul heard that call on the road to Damascus and his word got, world got turned upside down, and previously he was not a man whose only hope was in Christ alone, okay? He, he was not a man that was full of Christ-like character. On that road, when Paul met Jesus, his hope was radically transformed by the presence and the vision of Christ. And his character was radically altered by that one new hope. Previously, if you think about Paul, he was a proud and arrogant man, right? But now he's a man full of humility, humble, teachable, leadable. Previously, Paul was a harsh and angry man, right? As I study about the Apostle Paul, he seems like a pretty harsh and angry guy to me. The guy was willing to stand there and hold cloaks of people who were stoning Christians. That sounds like an angry, harsh man to me. But now he's a gentle and passionate man. Don't hear me wrong, Paul's not a pushover, right? Love Charles Swindoll's I think you call it an expose? No, I'm just using words to use words. It's a book that he wrote about the Apostle Paul. And it was called Paul, a man of grace and grit. Think about that. Like, man of grace and grit. I don't know. Grace like grandma somebody. And grit like Clint Eastwood. There, you put those two together. That's, that's the picture of the Apostle Paul. It's not a pushover, right? He's a tough man, though. He says some hard things. We're going to hear more hard things that the Apostle Paul says as we move forward. So catch that vision, right? Gentle and passionate man. Well, previously, he was impatient and headed to Damascus to make a name for himself. But now, now he's a man who's full of patience as he bears with the slow growth of the people that he shepherds and the churches he plants. Previously, Paul was a wolf who fed his belly on the suffering of the saints. Now he's a man who loves God's people. Previously, he's a man who caused disunity and division. Now he's a man who seeks unity in the church, right? Previously, he's a man who's known for his war against Christ and his bride, the church. And now he's a man that's on a peacemaking mission for God. So Paul's hope was radically reoriented. His character was radically transformed. Think of those two words, reoriented and transformed. Instead of complacent and unchanged, it was reoriented, turned around, and it was transformed. Hope reoriented, character transformed. This is the evidence of what we see in Paul's life. The reorientation of the object of Paul's hope, 
the new hope that he had, the true hope that he had, that reorientation of his hope changed his character. It transformed it. He's a completely different man. And it gave him the credibility then to urge his listeners to walk this way with all humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So the, the Apostle Paul was not the kind of man who urged his followers to do the things that he refused to do. That's not Paul. Paul does not urge people to do things that he refuses to do. Paul is a man who urges his followers to do what they see him doing. When the Apostle Paul called the Ephesians to walk the walk, he did it as a man who was also seeking to walk the walk and not just talk the talk, right? That's the Apostle Paul. Not interested in lip service. Paul is interested in hope-filled obedience. Called to walk in hope-filled obedience. Called to walk in Christ-like character. But, introduction over, six points begin, right? What does that look like? I've been talking about hope-filled obedience and Christ-like character for the better half of our time together so far. What does that look like? Six things that Paul outlines, six character attributes. I'll try to roll through them quickly from verses 2 and 3. Number one, number one, we're called to walk in humility. And when I think of humility, I think of what Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 through 8. These should be on the screen for you, so hopefully you can follow along. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you, not just some of you, each of you, all of you, each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. Think this way, act this way, behave this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Have this character among yourselves. This kind of mind, this kind of character. These are the people you are to be. This kind of character is actually yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, there's only one person who was actually in the form of God, right? Jesus. The rest of us were created in His image, but not in the form of God. And yet the funny thing is, is that Jesus didn't strive to be God while we strive to be God. You follow me? Interesting. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being formed or being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. I mean, if, if you want a picture of obedience, look to Christ. In the midst of your own disobedience, trust in his obedience on your behalf. That will empower you to walk obediently. A person with humility is not selfish. This person actually thinks of others as more important person with humility pays attention to the interests or needs of others, doesn't strive to play the role of God, doesn't try to know everything, doesn't try to be everywhere all at once, doesn't try to have all the answers, because God and God alone 
as those. A person with humility is, is empty of self-centeredness, delights in serving other people. A person with humility is, is humble, teachable, obedient to the point of death on behalf of his enemies. Listen, any, anytime you think you have an enemy, which many of us do, right? We all have some enemies here and there. Anytime you think you have an enemy, our, our enemies are not nearly as bad as the enemies that, that Jesus had. Because okay. he had a whole lot more enemies than you and I did. Namely because at one point, every human that's ever been born or ever will be born has lived as his enemy. That's a whole lot of names on a list that I can't even fathom trying to deal with. And somehow, Jesus did this well. Number two, called to walk in gentleness. When I think of gentleness, I think I mentioned earlier a grandma. I remember my grandma, Leah. Okay? My grandma, Leah, is on my mom's side, so Swedish and Norwegian. Um, it's not the Italian side. The Italian side is totally different. Um, hopefully you'll get that. My, my grandma, Leah, though, on my mom's side of the family, um, she was one of the gentlest people I've ever known. But she wasn't a pushover either, okay? And Grandma Leah was no doormat, but her gentleness was obvious. So, so one of my old memories of my Grandma Leah um, just kind of sets the frame for me. Um, she, she could tell you stories, uh, crazy funny stories, of little green Martian men that would come and camp out in her house. And she wasn't crazy. We, we joked that she was. Um, little green Martian men that would come camp out in her house, all the way from that to being part of the Blackfoot Indian tribe. And she could just tell you these stories with just some of the gentlest, sweetest tones in her voice. And um, while telling you those stories with the gentlest and sweetest tones, she could also smack your hand with a wooden spoon for trying to reach for another piece of bacon that she was making for breakfast. Okay, so gentle but able to smack you on the hand when needed. Um, we are called to be gentle and to walk in gentleness, but we are not called to be doormats or pushovers, especially when it comes to sin. Right? What we do not tolerate. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.24 through chapter 3, verse 5. When I said that Paul says harsh things, <laughs> listen to what he says here. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. For God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, this first half, these first few verses, Paul sounds really gentle. He's frank and he's straight that by preaching, teaching, coming alongside of our friends and our neighbors and our family members in a gentle and patient way that God might perhaps grant repentance to that person that you're walking with, right? And that that person may be won back from walking in ownership to the devil rather than being owner, owned by God. Um, but here's the smack on the hand. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's pretty straight. The smack on the hand is this, what feels like an endless list. Okay, so listen to this. Understand this, he says. So it's like he shifts gears, grabs his wooden spoon. Understand this. In the last days, there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. Listen to the people that he describes here. And see if you have been in these categories. Or if you know somebody who's in these categories. Maybe you're there currently. Listen to what Paul says. 
Understand this, in the last times there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, kids, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This last one's great. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. I am certain that, that we are all guilty at times of many of these, but that last one to me, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. What, Paul's final instruction in this, avoid such people. Right? Smack on the hand. He's gentle. He's patient. But he's also saying real straightly, avoid such people called to walk in hopeful obedience with the evidence of Christ-like gentleness. And I have no way to unpack all of that for you other than to simply say, these passages have been wrecking me this week. Number three, we're called to walk in patience. Now, patience is an interesting thing. Every time I pray for the Lord to give me patience, what he does is he shows me the opportunities that I already have. It's not like he gives me opportunities, okay? He's already given me opportunities to be patient. It's just that I don't want to be patient in those opportunities. I want you to just give me patience. That's, that's what's happening in the deception of my brain, okay, and my heart. It's already given me. So what God does is shows me the opportunities where in which I can be obedient and walk patiently. Sometimes I just get impatient with my lack of patience. But I am encouraged by the promises and the patience of God, though. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, tells us that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. Just think about that. One day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. This is the way God sees timelines, okay? You and I see timelines much differently. We set up goals. We want to get things done by a certain time. We get impatient, angry, upset. We lack hope when things don't happen in the timeline that we wanted them to. With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow, Peter says, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, that context of 2 Peter is all about the day of judgment. Okay. The day of judgment is coming. This is a topic we don't like to talk about, but the day of judgment is coming someday. Jesus is coming back. Blessed be the Lord. Thank God. He's coming back on a white horse, going to have a tattoo on his thigh, and I can't wait to like, sit down with him and, and hopefully we can compare. I'm sure his is much more perfect than mine. And his says something much nicer, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And at the name of Christ, and at the appearance of Christ on that white horse, with his clothes drenched in the blood of the saints, 
with the word coming out of his mouth and with his eyes seeing everything that could possibly be seen, when Jesus comes back, has an iron scepter, breaks the knees of people who previously would not kneel and bow before him, and everybody in heaven and on earth kneels and says, this is Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords. So that's the context of what Peter's talking about. And he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. He doesn't want any to perish. not saying that none won't perish. just saying, this is God's desire, is that none would perish. But that all would reach repentance. <coughs> so the day of judgment will come. And that's an awesome promise to trust in. It's also a fearful thing to think about, depending upon where you're sitting today. Depending upon where you've placed your hope. Right? It's the day of judgment. Justice will be served against those who have continued to live as his enemies rather than turning in repentance. But in the meantime, the patience of God, while it may appear to be slower than slow for some of us who are awaiting that day, it's perfect. His patience is perfect. His patience is good. His patience is happy to wait until the last sinner humbles himself in repentance. See, it is the kind patience of God that brings men to repentance. Think about how patient, kind God has been towards you and I. Man. It's a humbling thing. And it's a fearful thing, too, when I realize how impatient I can be. Number four. Called to walk in love. This is probably the beefiest um, point I have. I'll do my best to work through quick. I know we're running short. Called to walk in love. There are many passages throughout the Bible about walking in love, right? But here, back in Ephesians 4, if you turn back there just for a moment, Paul describes one of the aspects of our calling to walk in love as this. He, he describes it this way. Bearing with one another in love. That's the way Paul says it. Bearing with one another in love. This phrase is one of the many famous one another passages in the Bible. And it, it reminds me that we are called to bear each other's burdens lovingly. I'll say this later. And I'll say it now too. Love is not an adjective. Love is not an adjective. Love is a verb. Okay? We use the word love like an adjective in our English language, right? Oh, I love that truck. Oh, I love that gun. I love my wife. But the question is, as an adjective, that's fine, right? When you use it that way. But love in the Bible is not meant as an adjective. It's meant as a verb. It's meant for you and I to go do, for you and I to go love. <clears throat> and it's not to be controlled by our emotions. But Paul echoes this, Galatians 6, 1 through 2, this thing about bearing with one another in love. Here's what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression... Now, that's an interesting phrase to start off with because you and I have real private lives. We want to walk privately. We pick and choose our friends based upon what we want to do and if they'll let us get away with it. Okay? Paul makes it clear that if anyone is caught in any transgression, brothers, he's addressing the entire church in Galatians. So he's saying, hey, you should know each other. You should know each other's lives so well, and you should be willing to step in, jump in when someone's caught in a transgression. You who are spiritual, he says, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now that does not mean those of you who don't think you're spiritual. If you claim to follow Christ, you are a spiritual person. This is a responsibility all of us have. This is one of the ways that we walk out love with one another, right? 
one of the illustrations I always use is uh, my kids standing in front of a railroad, on railroad track with a train bearing down on them. What's my responsibility to do with them in love? Jump on them, tackle them, yank them off the railroad track. Even if I bust an arm in the process, much better than getting hit by a train, right? Now, I'm never going to break my kid's arm. Please, don't twist that either, okay? Realize the force of my words. <laughs> the point is, sometimes when you, when, you, when you take off after someone in love, there's a painful process in that. A friend of mine told a story about a friend of his who had a son whose legs, when he was born, legs were not right. One of the things that they had to do to his legs each day was to put them in these braces to straighten them out. Painful, painful process. Daddy, every night, had to put his son's legs in these braces, and his son would scream and cry and kick and yell, Daddy, why are you doing this to me? Painful process. And the answer from Dad was, because I love you. He wanted to help his son walk straight. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then Romans 12, 2, Paul says this, Romans 12, 9 through 10. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. But we're called to walk in love as we bear one another's burdens, as we seek to restore our friends who have fallen into sin. Called to walk in genuine love, not, not fake love towards one another. We're not, we're not called to just grin and bear it when we're in the room with that person. Called to hate evil and love doing good by competing, actually competing with one another. In brotherly affection, we're to compete for that. This is what true love looks like. Don't, don't settle for cheap emotional imitations. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, echoes the same thing. Paul again, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. True love never ends. So don't settle for cheap imitations of love that are controlled by your emotions. We're, we're called to walk in love with one another as we bear each other's burdens patiently and humbly and truthfully and joyfully. Love really is a verb. It's not an adjective. Because truthfully, if you could describe the many, describe the many seasons of what it means to love someone in our lives, it would not feel like love. True love does not necessarily feel like true love, because true love is a verb. Number five, called The Walk in Unity. One of my favorite television programs, some of you probably know, is, is a show called The Voice. Love that show. Like my wife got me hooked on it like in the second season, and now we're like 17, 18, 20 seasons in. And uh, uh, it's just it's one of my favorite shows. I, there's a few others. I call them shows. That's going to make fun of me. I know. Um, I don't know what they're supposed to be called. I know I'm old. And so that's our joke is that, Joe, you're old because you call it a show. My dad does that. Okay, well, 
I'm old. Um, one of my favorite shows. I, I love that show, and I love my wife, too. So um, we typically record the voice. Hey, if you're not catching the irony or the sarcasm and everything I'm saying right now, <laughs> being that we just got done talking about love and the way you describe things, like, come on, okay, catch up. <laughs> um, so I love the show, love my wife. We record the show um, when, when it's on. And I just love saying show over and over again because I know that it makes Seth cringe and squirm. Um, <laughs> but we, we record it and then we wait for each other, typically. And sometimes I get impatient. Every once in a while she does, but typically it's me that gets impatient and watches it without her. But I, I try not to watch it without her, okay? So that's the purpose. We, we, uh, we, we record it so we can watch that together. Um, sometimes I got late meetings. Um, responsibilities with church um, that means I'm gonna get home late and what happens on those evenings is I'm looking forward to watching that with my wife um, you could say I'm eager to get home and watch that show and this is what Paul says he uses the word eager okay it's that same kind of eagerness we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit we're to look forward to walking in unity we're to look for opportunities to strengthen the unity of our church family. And the key to this kind of eagerness or readiness or anticipation of unity is unequivocally, all throughout the Bible, the spirit of the living God who left the tomb empty. When the spirit of God is at work among God's children, you can spot God's children a million miles away. Why? Because the Spirit of God is at work in them and there is unity. And the reason for that kind of Christ-like unity is because each person in that community is clinging to the same cross where the same Savior died and they're looking at the same empty tomb and the same power from that same empty tomb is coursing through that community of individuals. That's how you get unity. It's not that everybody dresses the same, says the same things. It's that everybody looks to the same cross, the same Savior, and the same empty tomb. And that holds them together like glue. Which leads me into number six, called to walk in peace. The way the Apostle Paul says is that we're called to walk in the bond of peace. Bond. Think about bond like using a really strong glue to glue something together, right? Called to walk in the bond of peace. Almost as though Paul really is continuing his thought in regards to unity, which he really is doing. It's one thought. I was just... Excited to separate the two for a minute. It's a reminder that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the wrath of God against me for my sin and against you for your sin. And he purchased our peace so that we can now live in peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God. We're no longer at war with God. We're, we're children of God. We're at peace with God. Therefore, because we are at peace with God, we can obediently walk in peace with others. Our horizontal peace with people starts and begins and rests upon our vertical peace with God. When you or I, our souls, our hearts are not at peace with God, what's going to happen in your horizontal relationships? Absolute wreckage. Because you have no peace. And rather than placing your hope in Christ, you place it in, in hopes with others. And that wrecks relationships, marriages, families, churches, gospel communities, right? Called to walk in the bond of peace. Now, a friend of mine 
uh, pastors a church that he planted a few years ago. And it's grown. It's grown a lot. They've added a number of new people to their church family. Various different backgrounds. His, his church is very diverse. Um, was there it's probably a year and a half ago. And um, without getting into all the details of, of their journey as a church, um, man, their church is full of ex-drug addicts, ex-workaholics, ex-alcoholics, people from various different social, economic, ethnic, religious backgrounds. It's a melting pot of people. Talk about a recipe for disaster, though, right? <clears throat> the craziest story of my friend's church, walking in the bond of peace, <clears throat> is a story he told me about four of his members. Knocked my socks off because I met them. And when I met them, and then he told me who they were, it blew my mind. All sit at the same table that day, um, out in the foyer area. He introduced me to his dad and his stepmom and his mom and his stepdad. His dad and his stepmom and his mom and his stepdad. All members of his church, all worshiping Jesus in the same space and place together. What had happened previously in their lives, I don't know all the details. All I know is that in my framework of thinking, that kind of peace and unity does not exist. And let me say this, it doesn't outside the miraculous work of Christ at the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit. Called to walk in hope-filled obedience, the evidence of Christ-like character. Now in conclusion, as I conclude, and my conclusion is not as long as my introduction. Paul was a man who traded his pride for humility. He traded violence for gentleness. He traded selfish impatience for patience. He traded hate for love. He traded division for unity and war for peace. He, he was able to do all of that because his hope had been what? Reoriented. And his character had been what? Transformed by that one hope. Remember, remember, remember what I said earlier, the Apostle Paul, he calls us to walk this walk. He does it as a person who is also seeking to walk the same walk. He's not just talking talk. He's not interested in lip service. He's interested in hope-filled obedience. We're called to walk in hope-filled obedience, Christ-like character, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. Now, you might, as you've heard all of this, find yourself lacking. You might hear a lot of what I've said and preached today. You might be sitting in a place where you feel like, man, I lack a lot of these character traits. You might not. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, no, I got it. I'm good. Okay. But if you're sitting here and you're, you're kind of in that role where you're like, you know what? I, I am lacking. And you might be asking the question, how do I walk this one out? How do I move forward? And if you're not asking that question, you, you might just be happy staying where you're at. I hope that you would be provoked to ask the question, how do I get myself out of that? And the answer is simple, um, but it requires a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and a ton of commitment on our part, I think, would be a good way to say it. Like, you need to reorient your hope to Christ. 
And when you do that, your character will become like Christ. That's a work that only the Holy Spirit can do. But let me tell you this. If the Holy Spirit is knocking on your door, like trying to get you to reorient your hope and trying to get you to open that door up um, so that your hope can be reoriented and your character can be transformed, uh, the door only opens from the inside. Like the Holy Spirit does not force his way in. Yet I will tell you this, on, on, on the flip side of that, because I think like Spurgeon, um, I land very Calvinistic on this doctrine, and I don't land Arminian. Because what you do from the inside of that door does not control what God can and will do to get you to open that door. You follow me? Like God will not kick the door down, but God is sovereign. And there's no telling what he will do to bring you to a place of desperation where you will open that door and invite him in so that he can become the hope of your life and then your hope will be reoriented to an object of a person that will never fail you. And then in that moment, your character will be transformed. So hope in Christ. His humility will become your humility. His gentleness will become your gentleness. His patience will become your patience. His love will become your love. His unity will become your unity. His peace will become your peace. Look to Christ. Place your hope and your trust in Him. Look at Him even now in your mind's eye, hanging on the cross in your place. That cross was designed for you and for me because of our sin. But He hung there for you with your name and your picture in his pocket that's the picture of grace that's what he did for you and I and then look at the power of the empty tomb he left it empty and he offers you that same power you see two pictures Christ hanging on the cross bleeding and dying for you and then you see the empty tomb and you see where Christ has been victorious where you have failed so that you can now walk in the same victory, not walk in the same old failure. Christ has beaten Satan's sin in the grave. Their power over you has been broken. The power of the resurrected Christ is available to you, and His Spirit is available to fill you. This is the hope that fills the believer that produces Christ-like character. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for our time in your word today. God, I pray that as we uh, wrap up and go to communion and worship and prayer, Father, I pray that you would draw our attention to the cross and the empty tomb. Reorient our hope there. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from the well. A gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.